Can I invite you, if you have a Bible, to turn to Genesis 3. This series that we are in kind of bounces us around a little, but we'll at least start in Genesis 3. Already said, we're kind of in this series. The name of the series is Greater Than, and, and the idea of the series of Greater Than is we're talking about things, looking at things that potentially could be greater in our lives than God. And in the series, really, we're doing that basically because as a church, we've said, hey, we want to be people who love God. In essence, we want to be people who God is our ultimate. And I realized last week when I was asked, Lloyd, what's that big purple thing up there that I need to explain our display because it really ties into the series? The big purple thing that up there is not a big purple thing. It is actually the Greek letter theta. And it's the Greek letter theta because theta is the first letter that begins the name of God. And sometimes theologians and Bible people, all of that, will use that letter as sort of the shorthand for God. So the idea is, is God is supposed to only be the only thing on the left side of the greater than sign is God. Now, there are things on the other side, and we've talked about some of those. We've talked about how money can be greater in our lives than God, how sex can be. We talked two weeks ago about success, and last week we talked about power. And this week we want to raise the issue, could control, could the idea of control or the issue of control be greater in your life and in my life than God? Now to kind of move into the topic, I was encouraged to kind of ask you guys some questions, in essence to put together a quiz, and so that's what we're going to do this morning. I'm going to ask you a quiz. Part of it came from some observations another pastor, a guy named Matt Chandler, made. Part of it comes from some questions that a, a counselor, psychologist, kind of a guy named Carl Albrecht asked. Carl Albrecht literally wrote an article, how would you know if you're a control freak? And so I kind of put those together. And so you can answer these questions. You can tell me your score before you leave. No one can go home today before you tell me your score. You need to do it on a scale of one to five. Each question, one, that's not me. Five, everybody that knows me knows that's me. Okay, so if you have a score of 40 on this, because there's eight questions, wow. So let's jump in. So here's our quiz. Here's the questions to get us started. Uh, do people comment you worry a lot? Do you say, if I want it done right, I have to do it myself? Question three. Do you help? Other people drive. Do you devote a lot of attention and energy keeping your personal environment organized? And in the first service, there were some people that were in my office not that long ago and realized you have every book organized alphabetically. Yes, that's just good stewardship. <laughs> Question five. Do you give a lot of shoulds and oughts? You know, you are just sort of an overflowing personal advice column. Just boom. Everywhere you go, you tell people, you should, you ought to. Question six. Do you, list, do you dislike depending on others, accepting help from them, or allowing them to do things for you? Question seven. Do you insist on being right, having things done your way, or having the final word? Question eight, do you become angry, irritable, or anxious when someone or something makes you late, when things don't start on time, or things don't go according to plan? So question, how'd you do on the quiz? 
I'm not going to ask you. How many of you had eight? You know, if you had eight, you're okay. Because you should have had at least eight. Because one for each one. Could control be an issue in your life? Now, maybe another question that needs to be asked, though, is, is control a bad thing? I mean, is it bad to have control? I mean, think about it. What if I do like to help people to drive? I mean, really, all I'm providing them is the same thing a GPS provides them. And, and if you've watched the new car commercials, all the new cars are coming out with those automatic braking systems. All you are doing is simply offering them an automatic brake system without having to buy a new car. That's incredibly considerate, don't you think? And, hey, is, I mean, is it really that big of a deal that you dislike depending on others? I mean, who wants to be a burden? Who wants to have everybody be a hassle and all those things? I mean, isn't it much better not to be? And, you know, what's wrong about being bothered that people are late? I mean, in some ways, the things I just talked about are things we might think you kind of want a responsible person to be concerned about some of those things. Right? So it can't be a bad thing, right? Well, to a certain extent... Money, sex, power, all those things, they have a part of life. They, they are in our lives and they're not necessarily bad in and of themselves. So maybe control's not bad in and of itself. But what if? What if you scored above a 30? What if instead of 40, you're, the people that know you best would actually give you a 50 on that test? Maybe then, maybe then, control's a real issue. Maybe then control is your greater than. Maybe control is an idol in your life. And we need to pay attention to it. We need to, to watch out. Last Monday, in the providence of God, I was directed to a quote from a professor at Trinity Evangelical Divinity Scale. His name is Kevin Van Hooser. And he wrote a book, and, and the book, it was hard to tell if it has, was coming out. Usually they release, how many of you, do you know that they release books often on Tuesdays? So I think when I saw the quote on Monday night, the book hadn't been released yet, but then it got released on Tuesday. Um, but he defined control freaks in this book. This was his quote. And this is how he defines control freaks. He said, sinners curved in on themselves, bent on securing their own existence and status. Now his point in making this quote is that, you know what, if control drives us, we're control freaks. And my guess is if I use the word control freak, there is somebody you're probably thinking of right now. And if you turn and look at the person next to you, that could be an issue. I'm not sure how much time I have this week to do counseling, you know, so be careful who you look at right now. But his point is if those things become a part of our lives, our lives get impacted because of that. And, and the impact of us being a control freak can be potentially very distorting, okay, to, to turn this into somewhat of a, to use a political word picture. If control is your president or control because God is not a president, he's a king. If control is your king, kings and presidents demand a tax payment. I don't know if you've noticed that. But you're going to have to pay a tax. And so if control is your king, there are some taxes that it's going to bring into your life that are going to distort you. 
Okay? If you and I are sinners curved in on ourselves, if we're bent on securing our existence and our status, there's a tax we're going to pay. And so what I want to do is just take a couple of minutes and kind of look at three passages that will kind of zoom in quickly on the tax we're going to pay. So the first one is in Genesis 3. Because in Genesis 3, I think it will explain to us the tax of what happens when we curve in on ourselves. Now, by that expression, curve in on ourselves, what it means is when I curve in on myself, I curve away from relationship and I curve in on me. Okay? Read the story, jumping in in the middle of the story, verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Okay, we mentioned this last week. Genesis 3 is the story of the fall of humanity. And we're kind of jumping into the middle of the first scene where the serpent talking to Eve. And basically his words in verses 4 and 5 are kind of created. He's kind of getting and hoping that Eve will begin to think of her life apart from God. Okay, in essence in verses 4 and 5, more in verse 5, he's suggesting to Eve that there are some things out there, some good things out there that she could have that God literally is sort of holding from her. God's not letting her have those things, but she could have those things without God. She doesn't need a relationship with God. There's some stuff God's not giving her she could have. And as she begins to think about that, and as we move into verse 6, it's kind of like she's thinking, wow, I, I could get some benefits here. There's some good stuff that could become a part of my life. Apart from my relationship with God, she's kind of curving in on herself. And she curves in on herself. She decides, I'm going to eat the fruit. And as she eats it, she gives it to Adam. But in that moment, in that moment of them curving away from relationship and curving into themselves, things change. Taking control. When you and I take control, things are altered. Life is altered. So why are you saying that? Well, look at what verse 7 says. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. I want you to contrast that really quickly with Genesis 2.25. Genesis 2.25 says, And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Before control, before curving in on themselves, being naked was not really a big issue. They were, in a sense, you could say they were controlled. It wasn't awkward. It wasn't difficult. But after they curved in on themselves, when they moved away from relationship to just kind of on themselves, what do they do? They start covering up. They are, in a sense, beginning to hide from each other. Their relationship was dramatically changed in that instant. When they curved in on themselves, things were changed. And as the story continues to unfold, the serpent has left the scene already. God's going to come on the scene and he's going to ask Adam, Hey Adam, what, what took place? And in Adam's second response in verse 12, we see how much this change, how much the tax of curving in on yourself is. Look at the verse with me. It reads very simply. The man said, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave Fruit of the tree, gave me fruit of the tree, 
and I ate. Now you notice what's happening here. Adam, he's kind of curved in on himself. And all of a sudden when he does that, when Adam curves in on himself, God and Eve become problems. I mean, his first words in Genesis 12 or Genesis 3:12, they're a problem. They're not a relationship anymore. They're a problem for him. When you and I seek to take control in our lives, when control becomes our most important thing, God and people might be useful to us. They might be useful to us, but they also might be problems. That's a tension point. Part of it's a tension point because when the Lord Jesus was asked, really, what's the most important thing in life? Jesus said, oh, that's easy. Loving God and loving people. That's what matters. Those are relational things. But when you curve in on yourself, when you take control, all of a sudden what life is supposed to be, you're like, throw that away. So the tax you and I pay when we curve in on ourselves, when control becomes a big thing in our lives, is we throw away what life should be all about. And we turn that into a problem. That is going to mess us up. That is going to destroy us. Being a control freak brings a huge tax. I don't think it's a tax any of us want to pay. Second tax. Kind of turn to a story in John chapter 13 with me. Verses 6 to 8 in the middle of a story again. you have a familiar story hopefully. But he starts out, he there refers to Jesus. So Jesus came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do not wash, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered, what I am doing you don't understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Okay, first tax was about our control. It was about us wanting to curve in on ourselves. What does that do? It means we don't love people and love God. The second tax really has to do with our existence. Now, if you put yourself in the shoes, or literally, I guess you would say, the sandals of the disciples, it would have been in that culture an incredibly odd situation for Jesus, the host of this event, this upper room Passover celebration. It would have been incredibly odd, awkward, for Jesus to be the one to get up to wash feet. And when odd situations happen, what you tend to see, when something odd happens... People that have a control bent kind of step up. Okay, you think about when a flood happens or when a hurricane goes through, you and I need somebody to step up. And, and there are people that do have, in a good sense, control bents in them, and they rise up and start to do things. Well, if you look at the 12 apostles, the 12 disciples that were in the room right then, Peter is probably the number one guy that's in the control. I mean, it's always Peter. Everybody's like, well, this isn't a good situation. And who steps up? It's always Peter. And so Peter steps up and says, are you going to wash my feet? He's kind of wondering. He's kind of wanting to get control because it's an awkward situation. And Jesus responds and says, hey, you don't understand. Now, implicit kind of in that statement when he says, you don't understand, in essence, he's saying, Peter, um, you need to submit to me right now. You need to let me wash your feet. I just said Peter's a control freak. Peter doesn't like people doing things for him. 
So he responds how at the beginning of verse 8. You shall never wash my feet. That, by definition, is the declaration of I'm in control. If you were to translate it sort of in a paraphrase, it would be Peter saying to Jesus, "Um, Jesus, I've kind of got life handled. I've got it figured out. I'm in control. I'm going to stand, so to speak, on my two own feet. My existence, Jesus, is is mine. I'm going to take care of my life. That's really what he's saying. To that, Jesus responds and says, "Um, Peter, come here just for a second. Um, Peter, that's not how life works. See, real life is not about you trying to secure your existence. Real life comes from me, from you being connected to me. If you want real life, Peter, it's not about what you can accomplish. It's about you being connected to me. In short, a life that has no share in Jesus is not really life. Being a control freak brings with it a big tax. And that big tax, in essence, is a life, an existence, without real life. How many of us want to pay that? Third tax has to do with status. Another story, this time we'll read the whole story, but in Luke chapter 10, at the end of the chapter, very simple story. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up with him, She went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. It's a simple story that's made a lot of people for a lot of years scratch their heads. I think part of the reason might be because more of us may be like a Martha than a Mary. And I can't prove this, folks. I I can't prove it. But I do think from sort of this story, sort of the data in this story, that Martha, I think she had a control leaning in her her life. She kind of was bent that way to take control. And in verse 38, it kind of started by saying Jesus came to her house. Well, we know that she had a brother and a sister. The three of them lived together, but it's her house. She's kind of been curved in a little bit, so to speak, on on herself. And she's kind of welcoming Jesus, but it's to her house. She's bringing literally the the biggest celebrity of the day is in her house. And and she kind of, you get the sense, she wants this event, this thing to go well. She kind of wants it to, to look good. But in the middle of that, what does she do? She kind of gets distracted. She forgets that Jesus is her guest. She's, she's kind of more concerned at almost like, what are other people going to say? What are people going to think of my party? Okay, She kind of has her status on mind. What is it going to look like? And in the midst of being turned in on herself, in the midst of being concerned about trying to have a status in the community, she missed hearing Jesus teach. She didn't hear him. That's a very sobering statement. If you and I are seeking control, if you and I are seeking status, there's a really good chance that part of the tax that we are going to pay is a tax of lacking, of failing to hear and know the one who loves us. Jesus wants to speak, but if I'm in control, I don't hear it. 
when you and I make, you know, when we make control an issue, when we want to have things in our lives kind of look good, and maybe even be well regarded because we've done nice things, it's very easy for us in the process of that to not hear the one who is life, to not hear his words who give us life. That's a huge tax to pay, to miss Jesus because you want control. There's a part of me that would love to be a teacher, you know, in an academic setting. And so I thought, well, what do teachers in academic settings do? Well, before they give it a quiz, they usually take it. So earlier this week, I had to take the quiz. And, you know, I scored like minus eight or something on it because control's not an issue for me at all. <clears throat> I started to see, you know what, there are some things where I, not everything. I, I don't tend to be one of those people who help drive, okay, usually, for the most part. <laughs> but I noticed, you know, there's a pull in my life that way. And that got me thinking, I've paid those taxes. Maybe one more than others, but I've paid those. And here's the kicker. When Jesus died on the cross, Galatians 1, or Galatians 5.1 and Galatians 5.13 tell us that he set us free. If you and I let control control us, we're going to pay a huge tax. And I don't know about you, but somehow, if I have the option between facing an enormous tax burden and freedom, I think I'd rather be on the freedom side. The question is, how do we, in a world that often forces us to want control, how do we live in a way so we reduce the cost of control? Okay, quickly what I want to do is walk through three steps that I think if we would take... We would walk by faith in these steps. We could reduce the cost of control in our lives. I'm not saying we can eliminate all of it. Because I think until the Lord Jesus returns, we're going to have some struggles there. But things we can do to reduce the cost of control. Okay, step number one, if we're going to do this, if we're going to reduce the cost of control in our lives, we need to join the gospel curve to God. Okay, we need to join the gospel curve. In, in 1 Peter chapter 3, in verse 18, Peter makes this descriptive statement. He says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, <clears throat> excuse me, that he might, <clears throat> pardon me, that <clears throat> two services, sometimes the voice is not always there. Here we go again. That he might... It was all for emphasis, because I really want you to see this phrase. Really, I do want you to see this phrase. That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, being made alive in the Spirit. Okay, We curve in on ourselves. We go away from relationship. Okay, We want to make our things go. That sets us up into trouble. I'll be honest, I... Control can seem so good. Having control can seem so right. And so we can go that way for a long time. You could say we can drink that Kool-Aid, keep sipping it, and it's good. But at some point, I honestly believe every single one of us who wants control like that is going to hit a wall. 
Because we're going to hit a point where we realize, I can't control things. I have known literally people who have gone through college with 4.0s, who have gone to medical school, who are considered in their field to have sort of the Midas touch. They can control, they can help every person. And I literally know the guy and he hit the wall. He couldn't change the fact that his mother was dying of cancer. He couldn't stop it. And he hit a wall and realized, I can't do this. All of us are going to hit the wall. But when we want control, all we get is a wall in our future. That's it. But guess what? The gospel says there's more to life than hitting a brick wall. There's the cross of Christ. And he died. Why did he die? To bring us to God. Our great struggle with control is we curve in on ourselves. And the gospel says, hey, we can take you from curving in on yourself to curve you into God. To curve you in the one you were created to have a relationship with. To curve you into the one who loves and cares for your soul. Huge question to ask this morning. Not insignificant. Have you trusted Christ? Have you turned from sin to God? Have you trusted the Lord Jesus? In essence, what we're talking about is have you joined the gospel curve? See, if you and I stay curved in on ourselves, we are in trouble. A wall is coming. And we need to turn from that. We need to curve into the one who loves us. If you want to reduce control in your life, you want to reduce that tax. Okay, this is Lloyd's tax plan. You want to reduce your task. How much you're paying? Turn in to the gospel. Turn in to God. Step two, second thing we've got to do. We need to choose the right focal point. Control really does want to offer us a focal point in life, something that really kind of feels, fills our field of vision. I'm, this is what I'm focused in on. This is what I'm going to do. Now, I'm not saying having a focal point in any way is bad. The question is, is the focal point the best one? If, if control is your focal point and having status and all that is your focal point, is that the right place? Colossians chapter 3. Verses 1 to 3, I think, suggest maybe it's not. Maybe there's a better way to go. Verse 1 begins, If you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now, verse 3, to kind of work backwards, verse 3 is basically saying to us, hey, here's the status of a person who's turned from sin to God and trusted Jesus as their Savior. Their status, their life, their identity is with Jesus. Okay, we don't have an identity alone. We have an identity with Jesus. That's where our identity is tied. And the kind of the logic is that if your status has changed because you've trusted Christ, then verses 1 and 2 tell us then our focal point should be different. If I've trusted Christ, then my focal point in life isn't about me trying to control things. It is about me seeking things above. Now the question is, what does it mean to seek things above? What is Paul talking about? Maybe you've heard the expression, you know, so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. Is that what this is talking about? Is it saying that you and I from now on should only know and be concerned about heaven? Well, no, it's not saying that. Now, 
Folks, it's really good for you and I to know a lot about heaven, to know about the new heavens and the new earth. That's huge, but that's not what Paul's talking about. If you look at verse 2, he's making a comparison. Set your things on things above, not things that are on earth. In essence, what he's saying is our focal point should be to live life right now from heaven-informed values instead of earth-informed values. Okay, When I approach whatever it is I'm approaching, whether it's how I approach, how my how I respond, how my college football team did yesterday, how the election results are going to be, all of that should be informed by the values of heaven. Think about a passage of Scripture that may be fairly familiar. If I say the Lord's Prayer, the Lord's Prayer begins, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's exactly what Paul's talking about. I want God's will here. Because you see, life isn't about my status. It's about Him. To say it another way, later in the same chapter, in Matthew chapter 6, Matthew 6.33, the Lord Jesus tells us, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things should be added unto you. My focal point in life shouldn't be my circumstances, shouldn't be my status, shouldn't be me trying to prove my existence. My focal point should be God's kingdom, living as one who's following God, following the values of God, and taking them from being, in essence, heavenly values, and letting that inform my life literally here every single day. Because you see, life isn't about my status and people being impressed with me. Real life is about God's status. If you and I are going to reduce the cost, we're going to bring our taxes down, so to speak. We've got to join the gospel curve. We've got, we've got to get the right focal point. And then the third thing, third step, is we need to embrace submission. Really quickly, how many of you like the word submission? Both services the exact same. Nobody gets excited to hear the word submit. But I'll tell you, I believe that is a negative statement about us. See, control tells us we can take control. We can take charge. But that's going to bring us a huge tax. If you and I want to reduce the cost of control in our lives, we need to move in the process of submitting. We need to go from us calling the shots, us trying to be something we're not, but practically, how do you do it? If, if Jesus is the good shepherd and we're not, if we're not created to be the CEO of life, how do we practically do this? Galatians chapter 5, verse 25 says very simply these words. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Now the idea of the first part of the verse there is the way we connect to the life of Jesus is really through the Holy Spirit. That's kind of Paul's reminding us. When a person trusts the Lord Jesus, when we turn from sin to God and receive the Lord Jesus as our Savior, the Holy Spirit becomes a part of our lives. That's our connection to Jesus, is the Holy Spirit. Okay, that's the first part of the verse. So if that's true, if you've trusted Jesus, then flowing out of that, you and I should keep in step with the Spirit. And I said, what does it mean to keep in step with the Spirit? Well, to use a word picture, you could talk about it in military terms. It would be as if you and I are to be marching. We're a big battalion of people, and we are to be marching. And the Holy Spirit is the one calling out the cadence. He's the one saying, left, right, left, and maybe, oh, we've got to turn. He's the one saying those things. 
Okay, in essence, if you and I want to reduce the cost of control in our lives, we need to, in essence, follow him. We need to keep in step with what does the Spirit say? Okay, we need to submit to his leadership. If he says go right, we need to go right. If he says go left, we need to go left. If he says double time, we've got to do double time. If we're going to reduce the cost of control, it's not about me trying to get control. It's about me listening to the one who has control. Now, practically, part of listening for that control, like literally, is you and I needing to trust the Bible. You and I needing to hear the Spirit of God speak. And this is most likely, folks, this is where He's going to speak. As the Word of God bubbles through us, that's how He speaks. Now, another part of us following and submitting to Him isn't just reading Scripture, but it's also us learning, in essence, how to hear His voice in a world where there's a lot of voices. Okay? There's a lot of voices that are going to tell you today, take control. There's also a lot of voices that are going to say to you, we'll control you. And we need to learn, in essence, how to hear the Holy Spirit. Now, I'll be very honest, and with the time left, like in two minutes, I can't tell you everything there is to listening to the Holy Spirit. And the truth is, it's not a quick thing to learn. Tuesday will mark, 35 years ago on Tuesday is the day I trusted Christ. And I've, in those last 35 years, I've learned some of what it means to listen to the Spirit of God. But I certainly wouldn't say I'm an expert. But what I have learned is when you lean into the gospel curve, and I lean into that relationship that I now have in Christ, when I have that right focal point, when I'm choosing the right focal point, all of a sudden it's a lot easier to hear the Spirit of God speak, hear His voice, and follow His direction. Let me finish by saying this. Control can seem so right. It can feel so empowering. And please know this, God is not against control being present in our lives. Part of the fruit of the Spirit, the final of the nine attributes of the fruit of the Spirit we looked at a year ago, is self-control. But God is against and knows it's dangerous for control to be our greater than, for control to be on the left side. We need God on the left side. So part of what that means, folks, is we need to understand that control offers an enormous amount, maybe. But what control delivers is high taxes. Which, folks, even though you and I don't necessarily love the word submit, even though that maybe seems odd and foreign to us, can I urge you, can I beg you, can I exhort you? Embrace submission to God. Embrace submission to the God who gave His Son for us and has promised us in Romans 8 that He will freely give us all things. Control can't do that. Only God can. Let's pray. Father, I am grateful to you for your goodness to us and for your just letting us have time. Father, you know what our scores really are from the control quiz. You know that maybe today we need to confess to you that we have let control be an idol in our lives. But Lord, the amazing thing is, is even if we need to confess that, you're not here to slap us and say you're terrible. Father, you offer us life in your Son. 
you offer us to be our greater than so that control can be where it should be in our lives and so that our lives really can be what you intended. Father, I pray today in the midst of our struggle with something like control, we would turn into you instead of into ourselves. We'd want to be focused on what you're calling us to focus on. And Lord, we would embrace submission and we would lovingly, longingly, desire deeply to just simply walk in step with your Spirit. Thank you for offering that to us. I pray we would receive all that you have for us. In the very precious name of the Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.